Well, good morning and uh, happy 4th of July. We are glad you are joining us for our online service today. Uh, if I said the name Emma Lazarus to you, you probably have no idea who that is. Uh, but she is an American poet uh, and wrote a very famous poem called The New Colossus. And uh, you may not even know this, but you're probably very familiar with some of the words from that poem. Um, the words from that poem that you would recognize are these. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Emma Lazarus penned those words in November of 1883 uh, as an, in an effort to raise money for the construction of a pedestal that the Statue of Liberty would sit on. And that poem is now cast into bronze and it's inside uh, the pedestal's lower level on Ellis Island. And we gather today on the 4th of July to celebrate the birth of our nation and which was founded on the idea that liberty and justice for all people matters. And the words penned by Miss Lazarus have been read by countless numbers of people over the years as a reminder that justice and freedom matter. As we gather this morning, we have in front of us another poem written about 3,000 years ago that expresses the importance of these same values, the values of pleading the cause of the weak and the fatherless, maintaining the rights of the poor and oppressed, and rescuing the weak and the needy. That poem can be found in your Bible uh, under the title Psalm 82. So if you will turn there, let's read it together. Psalm 82, verse 1. God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the cause of the weak and fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They know nothing, they understand nothing, they walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere men. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. We get a picture in this psalm of God uh, presiding over a council or a great assembly uh, where he is judging. The book of Job as well as the prophet Micah and the New Testament writers who speak of the day of judgment give us similar scenes. And the big question here that inevitably comes up when you read Psalm 82 is who are the little g gods mentioned here? Uh, everybody wants to know the answer to that question. Well, there are usually about three options that are presented as an answer. First, 
uh, you have the option that they are pagan gods that are all subordinate to Yahweh, the one true God. Or the second option, they're what Paul refers to as the principalities and powers or uh, spiritual forces that govern what we can't see. Uh, And the third option is that they are humans, specifically the judges or rulers of Israel that are responsible for ruling over God's people. Now, we're going to get to the explanation of who the little g gods are when we get to verse 6, but for now, uh, I want us to look at what these gods are accused of. Here's the charge against them. If you look at it, you see the charge has to do with how people are being governed. Verse 2, how long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? What you see is that government is exceedingly important to God. It's not something that we shove off to the side of our life and we have our Christian life over here and we have our uh, civic life over here. No, God is very much concerned about how people are governed. Uh, John Calvin also shared a very high view of civil government. He thought uh, that the calling to government was one of the highest callings a person could have. He believed that uh, and recognized that all government was appointed by God for the general welfare of all people and that uh, nothing was more beneficial to the people of God than good governance. And in verse 2, what we see here is that God brings an accusation against these judges or these gods. How long will you judge unjustly? In other words, God stands in the whole assembly. He points to these little g gods and he says, you're judging unjustly and you are showing favoritism to the wicked. And so that's the stage that's set here in verse 2. Having brought the initial charge, he tells them what he wants them to do instead of what they are doing. Look in verses 3 and 4. Defend the cause of the weak and fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. He tells them what he expects. That their rule is to look out for the interest of those who are most likely to be overlooked. Those who are to be mistreated. He, He gives us a list. The weak, the fatherless, the poor, the oppressed... You are to look out for those that are uh, going to be overlooked by most people and to make sure justice and protection is given to them from the wicked. Notice how he speaks of that in verse 4. He gives at least two elements of the kind of government and rule that he expects from leaders. First, you need to look out for those who are going to be overlooked. They, they need to make sure, in other words, that there is equal justice for everyone and that there's no favoritism shown for people. And second, you need to defend those who are vulnerable from mistreatment and aggression by the wicked. So there's this dispensation of justice and there's a defense of those who are unable to defend themselves. 
And both these elements are expected by God in terms of good government. That's the reason Bible-believing Jesus followers have always believed that good government ought to foster equal justice under the law. That's not an idea that was invented by us. It's a biblical truth that equal justice under the law is something God expects. It's a universal principle. In fact, it's a really good apologetic, if you think about it. Um, For you as a Christian, if uh, you're in a conversation with a non-Christian, you might say to them, Oh, as a Christ follower, I have a reason why I think there should be equal justice under the law. If you believe in Darwinian evolution and naturalism and you don't believe there is a God, um, on what basis would you possibly believe there ought to be equal justice under the law? That's the, the philosophical underpinning of Darwinian evolution is this, is that only the strong survive. And if you believe that, you have no reason to defend the weak. So it's a really good uh, place to start from, from an apologetic conversation. Um, there's not really a good answer for anyone who denies the creator God, the one who establishes the universal norms for right and wrong of truth and justice. If you don't believe in that God, you don't really have anywhere to argue from that justice should be equal what God is doing here is he is enforcing in his people the belief that God himself is the source of government and that he is the source of enduring moral norms by which all good government should be measured and he is deeply interested in just rule in all societies one of the things you'll notice about this psalm of course or in all the psalms is that they continually emphasize that God rules not just over Israel, but over what? All nations. They belong to him. So God is concerned for just rule, not just among his people, but for all people. In all societies. If you remember Jesus, when he's standing before Pilate in John uh, 19, Jesus acknowledges this. Uh, when uh, he says to Pilate, you would have no authority over me if it were not given to you by my father. He's acknowledging the rule of Pilate in Palestine ultimately doesn't go back to Caesar, it goes to God. Paul will say the same thing in Romans 13, under the reign of Nero, for crying out loud, Paul says that God has appointed government including Nero, for the welfare of people. He is the source of government. He is the source of enduring moral norms by which all good government is measured. And he is interested in that. And he's going to hold accountable those who sit in those positions. Here's God's complaint against unjust government. Look in verse 5. They know nothing, they understand nothing, they walk about in darkness, all the foundations of the earth are shaken. Asaph, the writer of this psalm there, is saying they're without understanding. They lack any wisdom or discernment, and they walk about as if they're blindfolded. They're engulfed in this fog of moral confusion 
what should be right is wrong and what's wrong is right. Everything is flipped on its head. They lack wisdom and discernment, something that is essential to uh, good rule and judgment. They're morally confused because they have not understood that the source of their authority and their power and their ability to rule comes from God, who has a standard, and that's who they're going to be accountable to. And the consequence of this lack of wisdom and discernment in verse 5 is this, that all the foundations of the earth are shaken. In other words, the whole moral order is upset. It's in turmoil because of poor leadership, unjust leadership. It's a bad place for a nation to be in when those who are responsible for justice know nothing about justice. And its judges are devoid of sound judgment. They walk in darkness, they're reckless, and they're ignorant. And in a position of authority, knowledge and righteousness are essential. But the psalmist is saying here that these who are in power here go on without hesitation, forgetting the responsibilities they have to the weak, the oppressed, the poor, the fatherless, and the punishment that they are actually bringing on themselves. When, when the dispensers of the law have um, dispensed with justice and settlements are unsettled, a society becomes unhinged. And the whole fabric of a nation is shaken. And when injustice is committed in the place where justice should be, Entire cultures and civilizations literally crumble. We don't have to look far in our world today to see evidence of that. And it's not new to our day and age to see unjust rulers bringing about the ruin, really, of uh, entire cultures. It's because they forget they hold their position because the God of the universe has put them there. In verse 6 through 8, we see God's declaration concerning these rulers. He warns of his judgment on them and what's ultimately coming. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. I said, you are God's. You're all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere men. You will fall like every other ruler. So I told you when we opened, I was going to give you what I believed uh, the little g gods were referring to. Remember, I told you there are uh, typically three responses to that. It's either pagan gods, angelic powers, or human rulers. Uh, the the best way to figure out what it is, I believe, is uh, let's see if Jesus said anything about it. And actually he did. So if you go to the Gospel of John, Jesus quotes this psalm, and I think it sheds a great deal of light on who uh, I believe the little g gods are. So Jesus appeals to uh, Psalm 82 verse 6 during a conflict with his opponents. I want to read it to you. So... Uh, in 
John, it says this, again the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, have I shown you many great miracles from the Father? For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Now, this is where Jesus quotes Psalm 82. He answered them, is it not written in your law? I have said, you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am a son of God? Do not believe me unless I do what my father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. So what you see when Jesus is using Psalm 82 verse 6 in his defense here in John, this is what he's doing. He is showing us that the word God, it's actually uh, the Old Testament word is Elohim, is legitimately used sometimes to refer to others than God himself. In fact, in Exodus, three different times, it's used to refer to the judges who ruled over um, um, Israel. And so what Jesus is saying is that the title, little g God, is applied to, look at what he says, to those whom the word of God came. He's telling us it's, if it's proper to use it for those people, uh, then it's much more appropriate to use it for me because Jesus is literally the son of God. The father set him apart as his own. It's as if we're back at Sinai again and God himself is speaking to the assembly of people when we see Jesus in the gospel of John. So the question is, who received the word of God at Sinai? Who was sanctified, set apart, commissioned, sent into the world? It was Israel. Not just its leaders and judges, but the whole nation. Jesus is saying the word God refers to, in this sense, the little g God refers to Israel, and it is through him alone, the true Israel, that we find what the word, the little g God word in Psalm 82 is really supposed to signify. God presides in the great assembly, not in the council of angels or judges. The word assembly is used for the gathering of Israel in Exodus and Deuteronomy multiple times. The people of Israel are all sons of the Most High. In Exodus 4.22, God says, Israel is my firstborn son. So I believe that not only are the little g gods in this psalm pointing to the rulers, those who hold positions of authority over his people, but all who would claim to follow Jesus, to all of us to whom the word of God came. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's you. John 1, 14 says this, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
If you've believed in Jesus, you have received the Word. The Word of God came to you. Paul uh, presses into that argument a little further because you, you may want to think, yeah, but I'm not a ruler. I'm not a representative. I don't hold any uh, office over anyone in any official capacity. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. If anyone is in Christ, in other words, if the word of God has come to you and made you alive and you're a Christ follower, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the word, world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, we are therefore Christ ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. That's us. God holds his people. We are ambassadors. So in God's kingdom, we hold a position, if you will, as an ambassador for the kingdom. And God holds his people accountable to uphold justice for the weak, the fatherless, the poor, the oppressed. You and I cannot turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to those who are most likely to be overlooked. Here, here's what Jesus is saying in John. In that in Jesus, the unthinkable has happened. Divine and human converge. And God is going to ultimately judge not just Israel and Israel's judges, but all of the nations. And then all the evils that we see in verses 2 through 5 of this psalm will be swept away. Because out of uh, one of the sons of the Most High, which is the phrase the angel uses to Mary when she says, uh, you will bear a son and he will be called uh, the son of the most high one of those is going to turn out to be in the fullest sense God and among them the little g gods God is saying that those who act unjustly will what what's going to happen to them when these faithless leaders are removed look at what the psalmist says they will die like mere men, like the mere men they are. Charles Spurgeon uh, has an incredible commentary on this verse that I, he says it better than I ever could. I want to share it with you. This is what he says about the phrase, uh, you will die like mere men. Spurgeon says, what sarcasm it seems. Great as the office made the men, they were still but men and must die. To every judge, this verse is a memento mori. He must leave the bench to stand at the bar. And on the way, he must put off the ermine to put on the shroud. How quickly death unrobes the great. What a leveler he is. He is no advocate for liberty, but in promoting equality and fraternity, he is a masterly Democrat. 
Great men die as common men do, as their blood is the same. So the stroke which lets out their life produces the same pains and throes. No places are too high for death's arrows. He brings down his birds from the tallest trees. And it is time that all men considered this. God is going to bring judgment. It is appointed for all men to die and then to face judgment, Paul tells us. And so that brings us to Asaph's final plea. In verse 8, we find these words from Asaph. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Judge the earth. Asaph is seen injustice in his day, much like we are in our day. If we look around the world, even we can look in our community even and probably find injustice. And Asaph is saying, God, you rise up, you handle it, you are the author of all morality, all government. If you don't act, no one will be spared. And so Asaph's prayer... This is written almost 3,000 years ago. And you wonder, was it answered? Is it ever going to be answered? His prayer for God to judge the earth. I think if we go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 5, we find the definitive answer to that prayer, and it is yes. It has been answered. John chapter 5, Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath and the Jews persecuted him. Verse 16 of chapter 5, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, verse 22, listen to this. The father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed from death to life. I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who here will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him, listen, authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good, Done good, we saw the list in Psalm 82. Those who have done good will rise to life and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. This is Jesus. I judge only as I hear and my judgment 
is just. Asaph's prayer for God to judge the earth is answered in the person of Jesus. What God is doing in Psalm 82 is he is reminding Israel and us here on the 4th of July, 2021, that God will hold all men accountable for how they have handled justice. The time will come when all races of men will bow down to God and accept him as king. There's only one king. And in the last days, all the unrighteous rulers and judges will be broken before him. The second coming of Jesus is still earth's brightest hope. And the question is, are you ready? As a follower of Jesus, as one to whom the word of God came, are you doing everything in your power to make sure that justice is upheld for the weak, the fatherless, the poor, the oppressed? That's our responsibility as the church, as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. We have that role. Perhaps you've never put your faith in Jesus and you sit even now under the reality that if you died today or Jesus returned, you would be separated and you would sit under that judgment we just read in John 5 where you will either be welcomed into the presence of God or you will be condemned to eternal punishment. He is coming again to bring justice. But between that day and this day, you can come before that judge and king and find mercy. You can call out to Jesus to save you. It's easy. If you were drowning, you would know how to call for help. It's as easy as saying, God, I recognize that I have sinned. I haven't lived up to your standards and I cannot save myself, and I want to put my hope and my trust in the work of Jesus, who is the perfect representation of what I was supposed to be. He lived the life I couldn't live, died the death I should have died, so that I can be reconciled to God. Call out to him to save you. Church, we like no other time in our history, at least in my lifetime, we live in an age where the, the buzzword of justice echoes throughout halls and in homes and coffee shops. People debate about justice. This is what I know from the word of God. that as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, as those who have been, who've had the great privilege of the word of God coming to us, we have a responsibility. We need to do everything in our power 
to seek justice for the weak, the fatherless, the poor, and the oppressed. This is not a political thing. This is a Bible thing. This is a Jesus thing. And we will answer to him someday for how we steward this responsibility. Let me pray for us. Father, even in our own day and age, the the words of Psalm 82 echo in our hearts with with a relevance and a a timeliness that uh, only you could do with something that was written 3,000 years ago. We look around and we see the foundations are shaken as we live in a nation which has lost its moorings. Uh, Father, we, uh, we ask that you would give us wisdom as Christian men and women living in a crazy, mixed-up world, how best to represent and be ambassadors for our Savior Jesus in this particular moment. And God, above all, we thank you that one day King Jesus will come and he will judge, and he will set right all the wrong that has ever been done in history. And until then, God, grant us faith to trust in Jesus and to seek justice for the weak, the fatherless, the poor, and the oppressed. For the glory of King Jesus, we pray this, and for the good of all people. Amen.